This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Yes, welcome everyone to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I am so excited you're here. My name is Alex Fitton. I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm here to bring you episode number 12. I'm so excited. This has been going for 12 weeks, and that is crazy pants, you guys. We have until episode 15, and then I'm going to take a little break before coming back in the beginning of 2018 with season two. But this week, we're going to hear from Rebecca Price. Rebecca is a licensed counselor and therapist at Waterstone Counseling, and she also is the clinical director of Grace Haven Ministries, which we have talked about before on the podcast. And so she is so incredibly knowledgeable about trauma and about the brain and, and the impact and how families can work with these kids who are just so hard. And I I loved talking to her and meeting her over a year ago, and she has greatly impacted the Fitton family um, just with her knowledge and her encouragement, and I hope that she can do that for everyone here. She is, like I said, just crazy smart, and I can't wait to share her with you guys. So on that note, let's jump right into my interview with Rebecca Price. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. And today we get to talk to Rebecca Price. Or, you know, is it Becca? I know that you tell people both. So I always call you Becca, but I know some people strictly are Rebecca people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my name is officially Rebecca, but um, I usually tell people call me anything as long as it's nice. Um, My (laughs) friends... Um, call me Becca most of the time or Beck even. So um, I'm pretty easygoing about that. That's awesome. Well, okay. Can you take a minute and introduce us to your family? Just tell us about your kids and your husband and what you do and all of that fun stuff. Sure. Um, so I have um, a wonderful husband, um, love of my life, um, next to Jesus. His name is Lance. And um, he's um, amazing. He is a um, vendor for um, Genio Turkey Store. Nice. So he sells turkey to Walmart, basically. Um, but, um, and uh, we have been married for 14 years, but um, together for longer than that. So um, <laughs> I won't age myself. Um, and then I have two boys. Um, one is Landon. He's 13 and um, he's in the eighth grade um, and he's an amazing, cool kid and um, fantastic and funny um, very tenderhearted and and kind of has my social justice heart um, in him. So I'm loving watching God shape that up in him. Um, and then Layton, um, he is eight years old and in the second grade. Um, and he is um, very uh, creative, um, very imaginative, um, lots of lots of fun to be with. Um, super sweet boy. So um, God's doing cool things in my kids, and I love watching them grow. That's awesome. So now, one of those kids, you had the good old fashioned way, and one of them came a different way, right? 
<laughs> yes. Um, both my kids have very interesting stories. Um, Landon, my older one, is um, biological. Um, but he uh, he has a very um, complex story in that he had, um, I had a very, very difficult um, pregnancy, very difficult delivery. And so all of the things that, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit that we learn about. Typically, we talk about with um, a lot of our adopted kids in terms of developmental traumas and complex traumas. Um, Landon had a lot of those, even though he's biological. So we um, we have had that experience in his world. And then Layton, my younger one, is adopted. Um, and so we have um, kind of both pieces of the things that I work with lots of families on um, going on in our home, but kind of in a different dynamic than a lot of the families that I get the pleasure of working with have. So, Oh, that's so awesome. So speaking of that, let's just launch into your kind of your adoption story, but I think your story is a little bit unique in that a lot of those behavioral issues are actually, um, actually happened more with your biological son. So what's kind of just your family story and how did you get into uh, this adoption thing? Okay. So um, that goes probably way back. I think um, the interesting thing about my story is that I do have a biological child, but I was actually told um, many, many years ago that I would never be able to have children. And wow. Um, I, uh, had kind of resigned myself to that at the time, um, that I got pregnant with Landon. I was, I was a social, I mean, I've been a social worker for several years. I was, um, practicing clinically in, um, working in community-based therapy in Head Starts and preschools doing play therapy with kids. And I had kind of resigned myself to the fact that these are my kids and these are going to be my kids, um, and I thought, you know, if I ever do, at that time, I wasn't married to my husband. We were dating and we, I remember having this conversation um, and him even saying to me one day, you'd be a great, you know, person to adopt. Like, don't feel bad that you can't do that because you'll, you would make a great, you know, adoptive mom. And um, so I guess it probably started way back there when I thought I would never be able to have children. Um biologically. Um, I kind of put that on the back burner, uh, because we got the surprise of Landon, um, and had ended up just, that's a whole crazy story for another day, but that was just literally a one in a million thing that we ended up being able to conceive Landon and God, um, had a very purpose, um, purposeful plan there. I ended up getting to have, um, have a child, carry a child, which I thought I would never get to do. Um, and it was amazing. Um, God was very good to us in that, um, regard. And, um, but then, like I said earlier, he had a lot of trauma. I had a lot of trauma in that delivery. And so, um, was very risky for me, probably almost impossible um, for me to try to have another child. And so we began pursuing options on what that might look like for us if we wanted to grow our family anymore. Um, 
And honestly, our adoption story took the shape of um, that we really wanted to try to have another biological child, but um, didn't want to risk. God had been gracious to give us one already. Um, both of us had nearly died in that experience. And I, um, the idea that I would try that again just to have my own, come out of my own belly and risk the one I had not having a mom later just because I needed that experience again. Um, I just prayed through that for a long time. Um, my husband and I decided that um, there was no reason to risk life and family when there were children all over the world who needed lots and lots of love. Um, and so we began that pursuit I actually had this heart for all the babies in Romania and the social worker, little social justice heart in me and advocacy for kids that I had had, you know, read about all of these different things and about babies in orphanages in Romania and um, Eastern Europe and had this heart to go there. And so that's kind of where we started. Um, and then God just proceeded to close every single door. So um, everywhere we went, Romania closed. We went to Russia. Um, we had difficulties there. They, that was not when they were closed, but there was a horrible political climate going on at that time. I mean, you name it, everywhere internationally that we attempted, something came up to not make that possible. Um we looked at domestic in several different realms, um, but we had just, again, everything that we looked at for some reason or another, that door would close. And so um, we had resigned ourselves to um, foster care um, and that hopefully in loving on those kids, at some point we would be able to adopt one of them. Um, we signed up to um, start our pride classes, which, interestingly, I now I now teach <laughs> um, <laughs> about six years. Um, I I never ended up getting to go to any of them um, until I was teaching them. Um, but we signed up to start our pride training and to do foster care. And the week that we were supposed to start that training, um, my husband had a connection with a former fraternity brother of his who had adopted four ch children from a, um, a small adoption agency. It's, it's really a nonprofit ministry in Tulsa. Um, and he told Lance about that. And Lance called me and said, this is probably everything we said we were never going to do. Um, but it sounds almost too good to be true, but let's, can we, um, let's look at it. And there was an informational meeting happened to be that week. And we drove over to that meeting and we sat and we listened to all these family stories. And we left there that night looking at each other going, oh my goodness, this literally is everything we said we would never do. Um, and yet we know that this is exactly where we're supposed to be. Um, and so we started the process, uh, with Crisis Pregnancy Outreach. That's the name of the ministry. And um, they've been there in Oklahoma for over 30 years now. Um, an amazing ministry that loves on 
uh, birth moms um, and uh, and adoptive families. Um, we loved that their focus was finding families for children, not children for families. And um, we started that process. And within six months, we had met Reagan, um, our amazing birth mom. Um, she uh, and her parents came and met us for some pizza one night and asked us 50 zillion questions that we thought we answered all wrong. Um, <laughs> and for some reason, they loved us. Um, we made connections with them. They loved on Landon, who was five at the time. And um, we became um, attached to their family. Um, and so within less than a year from the time that we signed on with crisis pregnancy outreach, um, we had Leighton in our arms. Wow. Um, and so it was a really cool experience. We got to be part of the end of Reagan's pregnancy. We were able to be there when Leighton was born. Um, and, uh, and we didn't just grow our family through a child because we chose to do it in a way that involved our being attached to their family. We, we've grown our family extensively by adding several hearts <laughs> that we love very much. So. Wow. That's such a, you know, I've known you for a little bit and I have never heard that story. So I loved hearing it. Yeah, I didn't, I mean, I knew that you had one in one, but I, I'm so excited to finally know a little bit more about the, the price story here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So, and we actually haven't even discussed what you, what you do and the many hats that you wear. So yes, um, you did ask me to tell you that and I forgot that. No, no, Um, you're totally fine. But that kind of, that kind of brings us into what I, what I really wanted to talk to you about, um, today. So why don't you tell us what you do and, um, like the list of things you do. Maybe we should say that. (laughs) Well, um, so it was actually my adoption with Leighton that got me into the adoption field. Um, I was not an adoption social worker prior to that. So um, I'm a clinical social worker. And I uh, have been in the social work field for oh, almost 20 years. Oh, my. Um, and um, I have worked with a variety of children and families. Um, and all of those have been included children who've come from backgrounds of trauma. Um, and clearly, um, if they're requiring services, there's been something hard, but really a lot of these kids, lots of complex trauma. Um, and so Layton's um, adoption connected me with a social worker who pulled me in to her world and said, I need some help. Will you start doing some home studies um, with me? And I said, oh, sure, I can do that with a new baby. And (laughs) um, eight years later, (laughs) um, I am all of that and then some. Um, I spent several years working for an adoption agency and doing work there with them um, and then doing independent home studies 
Um, I do not do that part anymore. I do still, um, for the last six years, uh, work um, kind of on a PRN basis for um, University of Arkansas at Little Rock School Social Work, which um, is with Mid-South Training Academy. And I do training work um, with foster and adoptive parents and within uh, different departments within the state who work with kids. So doing training um, staff at residential facilities, um, parents, different people involved with kids around the state who have had trouble um, on trauma-informed care um, and understanding our kids, building trust and connection. Um, I am a counselor at Waterstone Counseling in Springdale, and I work uh, there with a variety of um, situations, um, but m- lots of attachment um, and trauma-focused work. Um, even in um, even in marital therapy, uh, because what we know is that attachment is what, when we're little, is what shapes how we relate to people all through our lifespan. So when we have issues within any relationship, we're coming out of that from our own attachment focus. Um, and then the reason that I'm connected with you here right now um, is that I work um, with all my heart with Grace Haven Ministries. Um, and we are um, a nonprofit ministry um, here in Northwest Arkansas, but reaching um, all over the world um, through some of our members Um supporting adoptive families, um, and really some foster families too, um, but supporting, uh, adoptive families, uh, through really hard things, um, just in the adjustments after, um, adoption, helping them with their, to, uh, build connections and relationships within their family to find healing when their kids, um, have really, really hard backgrounds. Um, and we are even hoping to expand that into doing more pre-adoptive training and, um, support people throughout the process. Um, we came along because of hard after, but because we have seen that in so many different areas, we want to expand that so that we reach people early and are able to walk that path with them all the way through. And, um, so, those are some of my many hats, um, and uh, I'm loving every single one of them. Yeah. Well, and a, a couple of notes to what you were saying. So you're super modest, and when you say that you, quote, work with Grace Haven, you're actually the clinical director of Grace Haven, which is a much bigger deal than you're making it sound. And B, you, okay, so you're also a yoga instructor. And I wanted you to talk about what that has to do with your adoption ministry, because it, I think it's so cool. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So I am. Um, and the, the way that I did that, um, just a little background on that, I am using that in the adoption ministry, because what, what, we're learning more and more is how um, yoga and various other types of mindfulness activities are really com- the, a key component to healing trauma. Um, and so 
without realizing it, what I know is that I was using yoga. I came into yoga because I was using it to heal my own um, physical trauma. As I mentioned earlier, um, having almost died when my son was born. And I really did not deal with the emotional impact that that had on me because I was so worried about coming in and getting him focused on his path and making sure he was okay. Uh, My body had impact, physical impact from that um, delivery. And I was really having some different um, physical components going on. Um, one of which was a huge balance deficit. And so I started practicing yoga at that time. Like, seriously, I had done a little yoga before, but I started practicing at that time um, to help me regain my own balance. And um, I started noticing that it had further benefits, that I that it impacted me in a greater way and was opening up more and more for me just physically and even making me um, more focused and um, emotionally sound. So I kept practicing that. And in the meantime, what as I began doing the work with um, adoptive families and more specifically kids who really struggled to make connections and to heal from really hard traumas, um, doing trauma work with them um started connecting the two um, research is actually showing that um, typical talk therapies or you know the play therapies um, that we do um, have benefit on healing but that a lot of times because of trauma there's a disconnect between the mind and the body and so the the body holds on to trauma um, in ways that we're still learning. Um, And so when we go in and we sit down in a talk therapy and and we go in with our different modalities that we've always had and we want to access these emotions, we struggle to do that as effectively when the body is not fully involved as well. It's a holistic process. And so what we've been learning is that when we incorporate things um, like yoga that can um, open our body and allow us a connection to a mind-body experience, um, then it helps our other therapies to then become more effective as well. Um, Yoga uh, has benefits of not only the mindfulness and, of course, um, strength, flexibility um, is very um, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming part of your autonomic nervous system. So um, (laughs) that's a lot of big words. It is. And I could explain that more, but I know that's not what you need right now. For kids, (laughs) what that means is that when kids are dysregulated. And they are not able to process through all the emotions that they have going on. They literally have traffic jams in their brain with all of the sensory um, input and the emotions and the um, constant. A lot of times kids coming from in the adoption world, coming from trauma, have um, 
just a constant state of hypervigilance where they're looking around and, and wait, waiting and watching for the next thing. And so anything that we can do to help them learn how to make their bodies to their brains to calm down. Um, and they're always wanting, you know, lots of them are moving, wanting to move around all the time. We see lots of that um, hyperactivity, too. And so the yoga is really beneficial in that way because it gives them an activity to do with their body, but it's actually calming their brains at the same time. Um, and what they don't realize is that that's the beginning of healing trauma that they're just really not even able to put their finger on yet. Um and another way that we're um, able to use it is in the forming connections in a family, because yoga is something that we can do together. But it's also a way that we can practice something uh, with children who maybe have a hard time connecting to their parents and maybe they resist even healthy touch. But if we can do activities where we're side by side and we're doing something fun, like making animal poses with our bodies, we can be a dog or um, a butterfly or um, a pelican or any of these different kinds of things. Um, we can grow trees and, with our bodies and doing these different yoga poses. We're doing this together. We're having fun. It's forming connections and, and building attachments, calming the body, calming the brain. Um, so many benefits in, in just one fun activity. So the gosh, it's so cool. World of possibilities. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is actually a good segue into um, your area of incredible expertise that I wanted to talk about. And to start us off, I want to tell a story. So once upon a time, uh-huh. <laughs> there were uh, two parents pulling their heads, their hair out because they had a kid that was driving them crazy and they felt like they were at the absolute end of their rope. And in walks this brunette angel who... <laughs> explained everything that no one had ever told them before, um, but was such incredible knowledge about the actual like physical brain of our child and what it looked like and how it had been affected by his trauma. And this was something, I mean, trauma was a word that we knew what it meant or we thought we knew what it meant, but we had absolutely no idea of the actual biological impact that it has on on the brain until you explained it to us. And I think all of us cried that day. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I know we are just one couple and you've done this for so many people. So, but I wanted to be able to just give a glimpse of this information to our listeners because it's so important. And I'm still just absolutely astounded that this is not more right, like just more available to parents who need to know this. So, um, when you have a kid who maybe has RAD or reactive attachment disorder or um, sensory issues or just has any kind of history of abuse, what is the first thing that you think about when you when you hear about these kids? Immediately. Well, the first word that comes to my mind now, um, and it's kind of cliche because we hear it more and more these days, but the first word that comes to my mind is trauma. Um, and people don't understand trauma and its impact on children, and often, or really on all of us, because we're all just people with brains, and <laughs> that's that's what happens to us when we go through hard. Um, 
Oftentimes, I immediately, when I hear someone come in and tell me about their child, I immediately feel a compassion um, because, and this sudden need to just start teaching, and I have to hold that back a little bit and listen first because, um, because I have experienced that with so many families that they come in with this helpless, almost ready to give up state. And I know how desperately I know that what this child is experiencing, what these people are seeing is a result of a lack of trust, a lack of connection, a lack of nurture. And so the last thing that this child needs is to be disconnected. Yet that's what's going on because no one's able to understand each other. And so if I can take that piece and try to help people, at least their connection, there may be so much wounding at that point. Sometimes there is that connection doesn't happen with those parents and that child, or it may not happen immediately. But oftentimes what happens is a softening because through that information, parents are able to see their child through a little bit of a different eye. They're able to see that what they're going through is literally, like you said, it is a um, it's a biological is our neurobiology is literally changed um, through these hard things. And so trauma is what comes to mind because people don't understand what that means or we have our own ideas of what trauma looks like. And honestly, trauma But ultimately, what trauma is, is um, anything that interrupts your normal trajectory, your normal developmental process in life um, at any age or stage. And so um, when we can break our myths about what trauma is and see that one person's heart might not seem, we may not be able to understand it, but it has interrupted their trajectory and caused a deficit for them, then we can have compassion and move forward from that place and meet them where they are. So I want you to repeat that first part just for the listeners that about the, um, that it, it rewires that, that whole part. Yes. So trauma literally rewires or interrupts the wiring of the brain. Um, and, uh, for anyone that might want to see, I don't know if they have it on YouTube. Um, if you want to see it, you can contact me and I'll send you a clip. There's a fantastic clip, um, that, that, uh, Dr. Uh, Karen Purvis does, um, that shows the attachment cycle, um, drawn out. And that's really, that's really what happens is, The wiring of the brain is structured through nurture and trust. When a child is in utero, there are parts of the brain that develop very strongly. But then there are parts that do not. And the the strongest part is that lower brain that covers our survival skills. And so when we're born and, and the left brain is a little bit more developed, the right brain is not at all. And if so, if you think about that, the right is almost all um, sensory, social, emotional. Left brain is very logical, linear, 
linguistic and lower brain is survival. And so a child's born and then we have needs, we cry, someone comes. It's through that trust building relationship when a baby can't regulate for themselves, someone comes and regulates for them. And then as they grow, someone regulates with them. And then ultimately, our hope is that they would be able to process and regulate for themselves. And that what happens is that lower brain is developed. And then through those nurturing interactions, the levels of the brain, it builds and develops the different parts of the brain. So the wiring that happens inside our brain happens when we grow trust and we recognize if I use my voice, someone listens and someone comes. So kids who either don't have that from the beginning or they have it and then for whatever reason it's taken away or there's another trauma that occurs of loss and grief and of various kinds in their lives, whether that's abuse or neglect or a natural disaster, whatever that may be, that wiring, that building, that growing gets interrupted. Um, And then everything, as the brain is the control center of our body, so everything about us is then dysregulated because the brain is not balanced. Right. And when you first told me this, it took a few times of you repeating it for me to actually understand that when you say like the rewiring of the brain, you mean like the actual physical, like I could touch them with my hands and not with my eyeballs, but like under a microscope, like I could see these connections. And you even showed me some pictures of like a brain, a normal brain and a brain that has experienced trauma and they look different. And that was absolutely mind blowing to me. Just that, you know, because I feel like we talk about the brain and in our minds, we're like, they all look the same, but, you know, some magic happens where everyone's yes. brain is different. But you you helped to teach me that that it's the actual physical, like with your eyeballs, looks and, and uh, development of the brain. And this is like the most profound thing that you've ever said is when you said that, um, you said, Alex, most of the time for these kids you're thinking that they won't do this, they won't do that, they they won't do what they're supposed to do, but it's not a won't, it's a can't. Yes. Yes, that is very true. It is not a won't, it's a can't. Almost, almost always. Now, are kids still kids? Yes, of course. Um, but that is a truth. And what's often very hard for these kids um, is that, Maybe on the outside, there's not anything that would show this. You know, if a child had a physical disability or some kind of physical um, illness, um, we would see that, we would know, we would adjust, we would accommodate for them to have what they needed. Because we can't see this on the outside, it often gets missed, overlooked, um, mislabeled. Um, And so a lot of times these kids then have a further um, setbacks because they're, you know, they're labeled with these different things or they're seen as a bad kid and they may be trying as hard as they can, but they can't get there because literally they don't have the capacity to do so. 
Um, it's like the video clip I mentioned earlier with Dr. Purvis and the attachment cycle, the way that she kind of sums up that video is that once all of this stuff, you know, you have, you have a, a piece of, of the puzzle, which is like the sympathetic nervous system. Like I mentioned, the child gets upset and then, then something happens to meet that need. And so the child gets calmed and that's your parasympathetic nervous system. And it creates this cycle, this big circular motion of having a need and then having it met and calming. And this, this cycle, um, when we don't have that, it's like the child becomes all of those, those needs, all of the benefits of the calming system get erased and so it's literally like the child becomes a runaway train. Mm-hmm. They cannot. It's not that they want to be this way. It's that they cannot function because they do not have the capacity to do so. Wow. And every time I hear it, that just astounds me because that's something I completely cannot relate with. And I think that that's, um, that's one of those things that whenever I first heard it, it just blew my mind because I've it's like trying to explain to someone what it feels like to be a man. Like I can never, ever, ever experience that. I, yes. I understand it in theory. I'm like, oh, you know, that I, I don't know what that's like and I never will. But here's like kind of what I understand from the outside. But it was crazy to me to think that I will literally never be able to relate with my child in this way. And yeah. um, yeah. and it just made me want to learn as much as I could about it. So. I think that, you know, what might be helpful and if it's okay with you is maybe I give you some, some different scenarios of, of realistic adoption uh, situations and maybe you could explain what the possible brain activity or what's going on under the, under the skin. Uh, would that, would that be okay? Okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my standard answer is always going to be if I haven't laid eyes on the child, I can't tell you for sure. But right. I can gander, you know, I can take a gander at it. Well, and I'm not basing this on, on actual children, but more just situations. So, like, if there is a child that has been adopted internationally and they were old enough to have, like, to remember experiences in an orphanage and they come home and, and parents are not understanding why their child is freaking out and having bad behaviors, but then they just completely like are in the fetal position and, and Mm. a sobbing mess. What's, what's actually going on there probably. Well, there could be a world of things going on there and probably a combination of things. Um, depending on their experiences, um, in the orphanage and this is okay. Let me just stop right there. (laughs) This is one thing that's very hard for parents to understand and really for any of us. It doesn't make sense. But oftentimes when people think about adoption and we have this idea that these children over across the world and these orphanages have this horrible existence, which in many cases, they do. Some of those conditions are horrific beyond what I can describe. But we have this idea that we're going to go across the world and bring this child home. And they're just going to lovingly like throw their arms around us and say, oh, thank you for saving me. Right. The, the white Jesus mentality. Exactly. Um, <laughs> And what we don't understand is that for though though it 
is not ideal in our minds and may have actually been completely horrific every day. This is what this child knows. And so any of us, when taken from what we know, whether good or bad, and there's this transition to total unknown, there's a fear and an insecurity. And so these kids are coming from what they know. And though, though it's going to be better and we know that, they don't. And so they will grieve the loss of life as they know it. So that may be one thing going on with the child that you mentioned. Um, there's also fear because if life was horrific there, even though you know you're safe for them, they don't know you're safe for them. So there's fear that's blanketing everything they're doing because they don't know that you're any different from the person that's been caring for them who wasn't really caring for them. Right. Right depending on how long they've been there and what their life experience is, I'm going to venture to say that they may be having just huge sensory overload from the world around them because most of the things that they're going to experience are completely outside the realm of what their brain and body have had to process. If you think about that, a child who's been in one place with one set group of people with you know, sterile walls and little experience, especially in like the really um, cold places. Like I have a friend who adopted from Russia years ago and her son was two and he freaked out when they went outside because his feet had never felt grass. Wow. We don't think about that. But so you take a child out of that environment and then you put them in a car and you drive them away and then you stay out in their country, but in a strange hotel and you don't speak the language. And then you put them on an airplane and you fly them across the ocean into a place that they don't know. And again, they still don't know you. Um. If you think about that in the capacity of just any of us taking that on, it feels overwhelming. But when you think about a child who has had very little sensory um, experience, that's complete overload for their brain. Um, If you think about that in terms of a child whose development has been affected, like we talked about previously, and so their brain does not have the capacity... um, to uh, function on their uh, the level of their chronological age, like you said, an older child, child, well, even if that child was 10 at the time of adoption, we've got 10 years of their own experience, whatever that might be, and probably developmentally, they're going to be half or less of that age. So um, a child whose brain functions in that way And it's processing experiences based on their limited social experience, their lack of attachment that we talked about earlier, um, this lack of sensory um, experience and knowledge, and then this overriding fear. um, And you take them into a total new world with all of these things on overload. 
when you see them in the fetal position, it's because they are literally shut down. They, the, the, the brain and body can only do so much. Right. And then at right. some point it will, it will say no more. Um, many, um, many kids, um, especially, um, if all of that is happening and then this child has had experiences of, um, abuse or sexual abuse or other things in their past or within the orphanage, um, they're going to be even more afraid. Um, and you may see a really great behavior for a little while because they don't know that you're not safe. And so they may be trying to keep you happy um, and afraid of what might happen. Um, and so um, they're, they're probably overloaded and um, shut down on many levels, emotional, sensory, <laughs> um, biological. Yeah. Well, and when you have all of those things working against you, I think that a lot of times our, we like to focus on one, you know, one specific thing, but in a situation like that where there's, you know, so many things stacked against these kids and, um, and it's hard, like I said earlier, it's hard for us to even access an understanding of what could possibly be going on. And we're expected to like care for and nurture this child. And, and in order to do that, you know, we obviously need to become more educated, uh, so, okay, let's, let's go for a different scenario. So what, what about a kid who doesn't seem to be experiencing pain the same way? You know, maybe they don't feel pain very easily at all. What, um, what, what, what's going on there probably? Uh, well, it could be different things again. Um, so you're, uh, again, um, I, I would go to the, um, my immediate go-to there would be a sensory experience of being um, more sensory um, deprived, uh, more hyposensitive, so not really able to 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 feel as much and needing a deeper input to be able to feel things. Um, the um, but. But if you go back to, like, again, to the neurobiology of that, when you have a child, um, it is the cerebellum in the brain that receives sensory input from the body. Um, and so when you've got this brain-body disconnect and you've got the this hypervigilant, overloaded lower brain trying to act for do most of the work because the higher level of functioning is not able to process. Um, I would, I would venture to say that there are probably a lot of messages and signals not being received as well. Um, that cerebellum is in your lower brain. Um, and, uh, it is what kind of knows what the brain wants to do and then compares it with what's actually happening. And so if you've got those mixed signals going on um, and you've got uh, that, that wiring um, that's disconnected and it's not going to be receiving the signals that it needs uh, to tell your body how to respond or react in different ways. 
I, I think I've told you this example, but but my my older son is like that, and I actually I actually um, had an experience <laughs> much uh, to my embarrassment one day where we were going to see a new preschool, um, and uh, he was outside riding his little Hot Wheels prior to leaving. And it was a lovely summer day and he was in his flip flops and I was being the mom that was trying to get everything perfect because we're going to see this preschool. And I was all in a hurry and I told him to come on and he came down that hill really fast and um, didn't I didn't realize it at the time, but came down a little too fast. And so he used um, put his feet down to stop himself from going fast. Um, and he had on his little flip flops, drove his feet along the concrete to slow himself down. Didn't didn't even notice it. Put his Hot Wheels up. He did. Jumped in his car, put on the car seat, drove all the way to the preschool. Not a word. Not a word. Pulled up in front of the preschool, went to get him out of the back seat, and he said, "Mommy, I think I might need a band aid." And I looked down. And the top of his foot is just like, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and the only way the child knew he needed a Band-Aid was when he saw the blood. Wow. And so, of course, he never cried, never anything. And so I, I didn't notice. And so then there I was. I had to carry him in the preschool and say, hi, we're here for our interview. And by the way, can you, <laughs> can you doctor my child's foot? Because... Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't take care of that before we left. <laughs> um, we didn't go to that preschool, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, but that's a great example of the way a child can have that kind of um, that kind of input missing. Yeah, ability to feel that um, in their bodies. So. And that, that sensory input, I think you already said that that can be caused by, by a lot of different things, um, including another, another example for you. So what about, um, what about a baby who experienced drugs in utero? What, what are some of the possibilities of what their actual physical brain looks like and, um, and how does that affect their attachment even at that age, newborn? Um, well, and that can be very different, um, they're going to have some of those same things that we've talked about already just in terms of, you know, due to um, the chemical imbalances um, in utero. Um, you know, we know that um, even when drugs aren't involved, we know that uh, now we didn't, we didn't used to think this was true. Um, but we know now that even uh, cortisol can cross the placental barrier. So stress that's going on with the mom is playing out into the baby's development as well. Um, and so when you, you do that and then you add something like drugs or alcohol uh, to the mix, it's going to um, really, really impact um, that child. Brain growth starts within the first month of um after conception. So in, in utero within that first month, brain is already growing. Um, and so when you have something like, um, drugs involved, it's definitely going to change, not just that neurobiology, like we talked about that can, can happen, um, 
through um, various types of trauma, but that um, can actually impact growth. It can change brain size. Um, you might see the color differences in in if you um, in pictures you might see color differences in the the brain matter, um, you know, the gray matter versus the white matter, which would show you um, the parts of the brain that are um, more um, underdeveloped. You would see uh, literally, I think I showed you a picture um, uh, of a child whose brain was changed just through neglect, you know, multiple times smaller than a typical brain of that age um, in a, um, in drug uh, related issues, we might see um, like frontal lobe damage. Um, there are things that um, multiple things that you can see there. And some of those behaviors like we see with um, after um, children are born. Um, if you're looking at drugs or like fetal alcohol, um, things like that, what we can see is the capacity to affect some of that neurobiological change a lot of times in terms of being able to build trust, build connections, but there may be needs and issues with those children that will extend um, beyond that um, because of uh, actual brain damage due to those substances. Gosh, that's just so crazy. And it makes me so sad for these kids because they didn't make any of those choices. And, um, and as an adoptive parent, I'm sure you understand that, you know, it's so easy for us to look at their behaviors and, uh, and not be able to see with our eyes what's actually going on. And we just get frustrated. And, and I think that, I mean, that's human. I'm not saying that that's wrong at all, but it's just such a good reminder to think about, um, just um, to think about what's really going on. And I'll give you, so I have one more just question and example for you. And the reason I've asked these is mainly just to get people's, get people's wheels turning that may be listening just to, um, just to not oversimplify some of these problems. Cause I think that that's, that's our go-to because we have our, our one filter through which yes. to see all of these things. And, and a lot of times yeah. our brains want to simplify it. We don't want to think that, you know, there's more going on that we don't know how to handle. Um, so l- let's, let's go there a little bit. What about, what about sexual abuse? So, um, maybe someone is having, you know, issues going to the bathroom or, uh, issues trusting, you know, men or women, but mostly probably mm-hmm. men. But I, so what, what, what could be going on there with the brain and, um, and some of those behaviors that we might see that maybe we have, we don't think have anything to do with sexual abuse, but they actually do. Sure. Um, so I will, I will hit that. I wanted to go back because something you just said was really interesting. And it's something that I tell people when they come and say, you know, what am I going to do? Is there a way? Can I, can we fix this? Can I help? And I say, yes. Yes, we can, but it's going to require that you break all your boxes. Mm, that's a good, good, good point. Um, Got to break our boxes because we do. I, we have to look at things with um, with a just through a different lens. We have to get outside our box to be able to see these kids. Um, and like I, I say all the time, but just to meet them right where they are. Because really, at the end of the day, that's what we all want, right? Is just somebody to meet us right where we are. We don't want to have to pretend and try hard to be something for someone else. We just want someone that will come 
and just be be with us right where we are. And yes, and it's absolutely foolish for us to think or expect these kids to do the opposite for them to meet us where at where we are at. Yes. Yes, because they don't have we where we are as adults, you know, some of us have gone through really hard stuff that we haven't totally worked through yet. And it's often that, that these kids trigger that in us and it makes us even <laughs> yes to, to respond to their needs. Um, but we, we tend to think at least as adults that we have an ability to regulate and to understand and to regulate for ourselves. But these kids have no capacity to do that. They're, they're supposed to learn that through, relationships. And so if they haven't had that for us to expect that they can just come along and get that and it's asinine, they need us to do that. And they need us to be able to regulate ourselves, which is also why it's crucial. If you have any plan to adopt or thought of adopting whatsoever, um, to really take a good look at yourself and your experiences and, where those sit with you, because um, if we respond to hard out of hard, um, it brings more hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to break those boxes and be willing to get outside of that. Yes. And I was going to say, for, for those of us listening who are like me and, and need this practical step by step, because you know, so much of this is very, it's convoluted, it's complex. There isn't a, um, like a, a handy guide of step-by-step instructions for each individual kid, because that's just, that's not logical. But, you know, if we're going to look at it in any kind of a step process, I think the first step is education and just realizing that all of this is true, is, is, um, is a thing that exists in the world that we cannot, oversimplify these kids and their in their issues and, and what they come from anymore. And the second step is like you said, to break those boxes. We you know, we have to accept that that's true and that that's what we're dealing with and and stop trying to make the square peg fit in the round hole, so to speak, right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um absolutely. So I always tell people that, you know, Anytime you you see your child have a certain behavior, just go ahead and err on the side of caution. Like give them give them the benefit of the doubt that it's a can't first. Um, because we just we we have to assume that because of what we know. Right. We have to. Yeah, and so on on that note, what back to that so back sexual? To, yeah. Yeah, your question. So um, in terms of the sexual abuse, um, that is going to play out. It, again, that's trauma. So it's going to play out the same, you know, very similarly in the brain with the way the brain itself is, is impacted. Um, but what it also may do is you can see that play out in very different ways with people. Um Sometimes what we'll see is a fear of people uh, because of that. There will be that lack of understanding um, for healthy touch. Even a healthy touch can be seen as um, harmful or detrimental, and there can be a lot of fear involved in that. Um, What you might also see is 
that we do what we know. So that child might be one who's going to come back and reenact that trauma Mm. over um, in different ways. Um, What we also will see is um, sometimes there will be, especially if there's been really severe, a lot of times. um, So, People hear this word and 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 disconnect from it um, be, because of the the connotations um, and associations that have been made with it across the years. But um, but dis- dissociation um, when we have a, it doesn't mean that you like space out and become some other person necessarily. But um, when we have so much. Um, trauma that the brain can only, you know, handle so much and so many emotions and um, can't process more pain at a given time, it will shut down. So there's like a complete separation um, of that person just from reality in that in a, in a given moment. Um, you may actually see a child just kind of go blank, go out for a little bit Um not that they close their eyes and fall over, but just if you were looking at them, you might not even notice that it happened. Um, but there may be periods of time where the child is there and you think they're with you, but they're completely not present um, with their minds. Um, various various things that you could see with serious complex um abuses and sexual abuses um, is one that is going to play out um, oftentimes in different ways over the life span. So it might be one that even if, if we knew about it early and we were able to come in and really work through some hurts and you see a lot of healing in that child, then as they develop, we might have to hit that again because with each developmental stage, there are going to be different ways that 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 place is going to be affected. So, I mean, those things are stored in the brain and, and they, it's, I mean, it's amazing what you just said to me. And even though it, it sounds relatively simple, it's just, it's astounding that, that something like that can impact you that much. And, and a lot of times as these, as people who have not been through that, um, we look at it and like I said, oversimplify it. We think it's just something that, you know, one and done, like you go through counseling, you fix the problem, you, you move on. And and you're saying that that's not at all what happens. That's not at all what happens. And especially not something like that where, because, because you're in some capacity, it's probably going to be revisited, especially something that involves sexual um, activity. Does that mean that, pure and total healing cannot happen. No, but it means that, but that awareness of ourselves and how we respond, how we feel about those things, um, what connections and beliefs and, um, and emotions are tied to that with us and for us are again, it's going to be critical as, as we grow. So walking through with that child, um, self-awareness and learning how to, as they 
you know, that's going to mean for us as they're younger, reflecting to them, oh, I see this about you. You know, you seem like you might feel this and helping them start to learn how to do that, because as they grow, you know, then um, so maybe you do some really good work before puberty, then puberty comes along and the body changes. And if there are still any feelings tied to that or to unhealthy touch or to experiences that have happened. And then suddenly the body might almost can feel like the enemy um, because it is, it reflects these things that were repugnant to us at some point. Um, And without even realizing it, sometimes that's, that's stored in an, um, in a place that, we can't really directly access. That's one thing that's interesting about memories um, is that, so we have to have really, that's why we might have like little bits and pieces of things or why for, for um, people working through trauma, it can feel really um, chaotic and disorganized because the brain due to all this neurobiology and the things that have, have changed and been affected in our brains um, a connection between the right and left brain um, really allow it to work as a unified whole, right? So they allow it to be complete. And so if if we have all of this imbalance, then we have these fragments of memories and these pieces that are kind of stored um, up. And we may have a piece here, but we can't tie it to a time or a place. Or um, we know that Like I look at myself in the mirror and I feel horrible. That makes me angry. Like I feel anger come up. But where does that come from? The brain has that. But because because we don't have that that unified connection, we can't piece it together and organize those memories. And so there's a place um, that will bring up emotions for us, you know, throughout life and without being able to access that mind body connection and a whole brain connection. Um, it will feel, um, it will feel, um, for lack of a better word, but chaotic and disorganized. Yeah. Things that will continue to rise with sexual abuse until there is a full healing. Wow. And, and as adoptive parents, often it's our job to, to walk, walk these kids through and towards, that, that full healing. And part of that, again, it goes back to that education and, and not being naive enough to think that this is a small or simple issue. Um, yeah. so yeah. I think we've maybe effect- effectively like scratched the surface of all of this stuff. <laughs> right? yeah. um, we could sit here all day and I don't want to, I mean, I can, you know, I love this stuff. I could talk about it forever, but, um, you, um, again, uh, it, it's layers and layers and layers. Yeah, totally. Um, very, very, there's lots of depth to this, but also so much beauty in it. It's also why it's so hard, um, for people in healing because there are layers of healing just as there are layers to understanding all of this. And so peeling that all back to bring wholeness can be hard, but then, there's also this beautiful connection that happens when we can do that. Yeah. Anything, anything that's fought for is going to be stronger. Um, 
So it's good stuff, Miss Becca. So I have some kind of closing questions that I ask all my guests. Are you cool with that? Sure. All right. And this is more about you and your adoption story. So what do you wish that someone had sat you down and told you at the beginning of this journey and just uh, maybe warned you about or an encouragement that you needed beforehand or something like that? Um, I wish that someone had told me that it was going to rock my world. Um, and I, I think people probably say that. Um, I know that people told me, um, adoption is not for the faint of heart, but I thought, well, I'm not faint of heart. I'm resilient and, (laughs) you know, strong and compassionate and, you know, all these things like I've got this. Um, nobody prepared me for the emotional roller coaster, the emotional depth that it was going to have on me. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. So what do you wish you had done differently through this? Well, I think, and again, it goes back to what do I wish someone had told me? I, number one, I wish that I had known (laughs) more of what I know now. Of course, I know that's science and we're still learning, but I think I would have been in a much different place even there with my own adoption to just see things very differently in how I transitioned my family in that process and how we worked together um, in that process. I put a lot of focus on attachment because that was really important. Um, but I didn't even understand the the depth of all of that to the extent that I do now. And I know there's probably even more. Yeah. That was really important. And I feel like had I known the emotional upheaval that I personally would experience through that process, um, and not sad. I mean, it's happy and sad and, and just so many things involved in it. Um, grieving your own life changes to take on this new thing, even though it's good. And, um, for us, if for me, it was this grief that came from that. My joy was coming from someone else's loss. Um, there was so much depth in all of that, that my brain just could not process all of that. And so had I known that was going to be the case, I would have taken more time to do some personal self-care on the front end. Mm. I would have taken more time to do a little self-assessment, even though I thought I knew myself really well. And when it came down to it, uh, I was kind of faint of heart. And it it knocked me down for a little while. Um, and so I think that I would have done a lot of self-care preparation assessment to just kind of see where I was and just um, spend some time, even though I was praying every day about all of this and God had led us through this process, just really spend some time getting down solid 
with God and just who I was in him and just just re-solidifying that purpose that I knew he had for us, um, you know, in faith, even when I can't see it, even when it feels hard, knowing that it's there because um, if you wait till you get in the middle of that craziness and then go, wait a minute, where am I? What am I doing? Where's my, where's my anchor? Where did I drop that? Um, you almost feel like like you're going to go under. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, um, I think it's cool that you talk about self care in this question because, um, I don't know if you, if you've listened to this episode, but the, uh, amazing Amy Butler, who is one of your friends, she, she, is did, amazing. she talked about the exact same thing about having eyes for yourself and, um, how that's not selfish at all. Yeah. It's actually the best thing that you can do for your children, for your family. Um, and she's right. And she's lived that. She's walked that out. Go girl, Amy. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's pretty great. She's amazing. I love her. Um, and I, I just daily honored that I get to walk alongside her. Um, but that is the one thing that I tell people, um, when they come in and say, okay, so what, what do I do for this child? And the first thing I ask is like, when was the last time you did something for you? When was the last time that you went on a date? When was the last time that you, whatever, (laughs) you know, took a walk, took a bath when, because, um, because the, again, back to what we've said a few times tonight that child is not going to know it unless we're reflecting it, unless we're showing it, unless we're regulate, co-regulating, regulating with them to help them learn how to do that. And right. the best way right. we're going to do that is to be able to regulate ourselves. So the best thing to do for your child is to take care of you. Yeah. And a big part of that, and I know you won't say it because uh, it, it is beneficial to it's uh, I'm sorry what am I trying to say it uh it benefits you but I will say it if you have adopted you need to be in counseling like that's just I know that might be a bold statement or like a universal statement but it's just it's it's true so yeah no it is it is truth and I, I appreciate you saying that no absolutely it even though people think about counseling as something that you do when you're broken um, no but this is something that you do to, it's preventative. You, it, it, you go in and you constantly reassess and you constantly address and you're keeping it. It's what we call, instead of being reactive, we're proactive. It's a proactive strategy. Right. Now, we end up there because we waited until we were breaking or almost broken <laughs> yeah, to present. get there. Yeah, right. Me, present company included. Um, I've been there, <laughs> sister. I get it. Um, but um, but yeah, once we realize, um, hey, this might even be coming. Hey, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to get that uh, relationship with a counselor going. So I know that I've got access to that when I need it. Right. Um, okay. So what is your, this is, uh, another question. So it's a little bit, uh, changing the subject. So what is your favorite way that your tribe supported you? And I always ask this, 
what what is a way that maybe you were hurt despite good intentions by other by mm-hmm. people that don't uh that aren't in this world an adoptive mom friend of mine um she threw me hosted me an, an amazing baby shower oh, that's um, awesome. you know people forget about that stuff like they don't do that stuff when you don't have a baby growing in your belly um and it it brought normalcy to a situation that felt very different. Last question. If you could just sum it all up into like one sentence or phrase of advice, what would it be for, for adoptive families? Connection. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that word, um, can trigger people's, um, shame and, and things that, that, that I would never mean to be triggering. Um, because when connection doesn't happen, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with us or that we're doing something wrong, but that's, um, often issue of this isn't going well because there's something wrong with me. I'm, I'm rejected or I am doing this wrong. And it breeds so much negativity that keeps us from then being able to come back and, and try to connect again. So I would never want to trigger that in anyone. Um, but you know, connection is key. Um, and I guess when I say connection, just remembering that that doesn't have to look like the perfectionism of our world today. Right. So, well, and I think it's important to encourage people in this, and this is, um, you know, I was actually just reminded when you said that, that I remember, you know, you sitting in our living room, that day and you had just unloaded all of this information on us. And, and you said that you said, you know, this is all about connection. And I think I looked at you with tears in my eyes and I said, but Rebecca, what if you don't want to connect anymore? And you said, you said, and that's hard, but this is like the, and this goes back to that support system thing. You know, you, you looked at me and you said, but that's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm going to walk this with you. And that was like the most gracing thing anyone had ever said to me. Not just like, here's some information. See ya. Not, you know, like I'll pray for you, but you, you were like, we will get through this. We, not you, we, and that was amazing. And so I would encourage anyone who's listening, if you're not in the Northwest Arkansas area and Grace Haven, I mean, Grace Haven can help anyone in the, in the world, but you know, if you don't have Rebecca in the same town as you, um, find someone, find, find that support system because yeah, and is... call me, I'll help connect you to someone. Um, I've, I've done that with a lot of people in, in a lot of other States and, um, and, uh, I would be happy to help find you a good trauma informed attachment focused, um, support system in another state. Um, and you're right, because no one, what you just said, no one should ever, no one can walk this alone. It, it, that, that is one of the, the hardest parts about this is that because when it gets hard, people start to feel alone and they feel like it's them and that no one understands their world. And so they turn inward and there's this sense of isolation and it's, it's, a, it's creates this negative cycle because they people feel more alone so then they isolate more and what we need is that that tribe that some are our people 
um, here at Grace Haven, we laugh because we've all walked that world and felt totally alone at some point. And it's like now here on our our uh, our support staff, we, we have people um, and say to each other regularly, hey, y'all are my peeps, because there's there are times when you feel completely alone when you're walking a world that many people don't understand. Um, and so no one can do that alone um, and should not be expected to. So, you know, it hits me as as you say that we say connection. And we, of course, assume that we're talking about within families, but connection across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, God created us to connect. He created us to need that, to want that. That's our brain is a literally wired on <laughs> nurture <laughs> and connection. Yeah. And connection. Um, that's the bottom line. And so connect to God and connect to others. And yes, our, our goal when we adopt is to create healthy attachments and connection with our children. But sometimes that's just hard. I mean, like virtually impossible. And when these kids have come from really hard, that can look like it's never going to happen. And you can daily feel like you are literally being just pushed away and that you, you lose, like you said, you lose that desire to want to go connect with that child. Don't let other connections replace that. There's, there's always hope. Never give up, but keep your connections with God and with others regardless. Don't isolate yes. and don't yes. hope that there's the opportunity to ultimately connect with your child Yes, and reach out before you get to that place of despair. Yes. Yes. Oh, good, good stuff, Miss Rebecca. So I'm going to link to Waterstone and to that video that you talked about earlier. Um, but where else, where are you, uh, where are you findable? Where are you, uh, I know you're on Facebook. Um, do you have like a yes. work email you want to share or anything like that? Sure. Um, so we have... Um, Gosh, I'm findable at um, Waterstone Counseling. Um, that's Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, at waterstonecounseling.com. Um, I'm findable at, um, I'm on Facebook, Rebecca T-O, that's spelled T-I-O, Price, P-R-I-C-E. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Yoga Please. Um, I, um, am at Grace Haven Ministries. Um, we can be found on Facebook, um, and, um, website, gracehavenhome.com. Um, Waterstone Counseling is, um, exactly that, waterstonecounseling.com. And I always, always, always link to Grace Haven. So I um, want to attach as many people to Grace Haven as possible because it is just so wonderful. Absolutely. And you know, that's one thing I just have to say that I love about my Waterstone family here too, is that like you kept talking about Amy Butler and how awesome she is. And you you talked to her last time. She has such that heart. So um, other folks here that are so amazing the folks 
uh, here at Waterstone have that same heart. Like they they have that Grace Haven heart, um, and many of them have been um, tied into that um, that work or the adoption world um, in some way. And so I love that those pieces of my life and my my different peeps get to like mesh so nicely and come together. Yeah. So, um, yeah. there's, um, there's beauty in all of those, um, those things. And definitely if you're an adoptive family and you are listening to this and you're going, Oh, I need all of that. Find us at Grace Haven. Um, call me. Um, I don't keep my cell phone number private. Though some people in the self-care world should probably say I should, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me. I would love to visit with you. I like getting coffee. I'll, I'll meet anyone, anywhere, anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Miss Alex. I love you. You are precious. Oh, if only you knew how much that meant to me. And I love you too. And I think you know that. And um, thank you for all that you do for so, so many people. And thanks for chatting with us tonight. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey and he is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.